0: Today, we'll talk with Dr. Niamh Shaw, who wants to uh, go to space. Have you been to space, Anthea?
1: To space? Yeah. Well, we're all in space, Oh, we? that's true. Yeah, that's what she so says all the time. I have been in space. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been, um, you know... In exactly outer space. Out of, out of the atmosphere. No. Um, oh,
0: that's a shame. You? Um, in my dreams, yeah. Oh, well, Many okay. times, yeah, okay. I've explored. I can't wait to know... Uh, more about space and having like an artist in space. That's very interesting.
1: Yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be fascinating. And this week is Science Week and Niamh is going to talk to us all about science communication.
0: This, this is Icargorama, Aikram. the podcast where we talk about Irish geoscience.
1: I'm Antea Lakia.
0: And I'm Ben Couvent.
1: Season 1, episode 11. So today we are joined by engineer, scientist, performer, artist and science communicator Dr. Neve Shaw.
0: So welcome, Neil. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> it's lovely to have you here. We should remind people why you're here, because okay. um, you're not a geoscientist.
2: No, I'm not a geoscientist. As much as I find the area really interesting, no. So I know you because I was invited by Fergus, who I know, Fergus McAuliffe, yes. to run um, a series of communications workshop as part of your conference, your internal conference. So I've been delivering communications workshops using novel methods of uh, you know, drama and theatre skills and improvisation to get people out of their heads and to realise like the human connection comes first and then thread the science through that. And that's really the big thing that I try to get people to consider when they're engaging with the public.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting, uh, especially for me as an early career scientist uh, to have this kind of workshop and it was a really good one because I never realized all the layers of human communication and how, you know, it's important to kind of pick up this signal from people and really mind your body language and all that. Yeah. And yeah, it threw me back to uh, my years of um, drama classes. and. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: th- I think that's that's the issue, really. I think uh, when you're, um, you know, when, when you study something that, that feels like it's... It's totally academic. You feel like mm. it's just your mind that should be engaged at all times. And a lot of it is, you know, even just through the whole college process, your, your body is in, is in a lot of a state of stillness because you're just absorbing information. And so I guess there's a sort of a pattern of behaviour there that when you get up to talk about your own work, you sort of mimic what a lecture is. but But it's very different. And if you're trying to appeal to a general audience, there's an awful lot that you take for granted when you're sitting there listening it's the way you communicate it's the words that you use but also it's um every time you stand in front of of the public no matter whether your peers or whether they're you know children or adults or whatever all performers are always considering that it's it's actually a conversation all the time and 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 that's really it and once you highlight that to people they kind of know it because all the time we're picking up signals you know like people you you know when you stand at a bus stop you know who's the weirdo who's the person that's kind of like you who can you ask for a favour who can you ask for direction So, so we know when somebody has an open body language and that's the kind of state of mind that we should be in every time we get up and communicate
0: yeah it's true and we don't think about it enough but when we're trying to communicate our research and our project especially at conferences when we're doing talks or presenting a poster if we're just like talking and staying in one spot is like really boring for the the audience.
1: Yeah, and the other element is improv, which is really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about how you use improv to, to connect or to be in your body?
2: We're the worst enemies. I think high achievers are very, very hard on themselves and when you're used to kind of measuring success based on getting 95% or 85% or beating yourself up if you fail. In your head, you're always trying to get something right. So you just want to know what the right answer is. And the great thing about improvisation is it kind of teaches you that there is no right or wrong. There is just here and now and what comes into your head in that precise moment. And the more you trust that, the more your instincts will tell you whether it's right or wrong. So it's about just reconnecting with that. And so, yeah, and and really improvisation is just about accessing our sense of play. As a child, you didn't kind of go, is it right to play with sand right now or is it right to colour in? They would just do it spontaneously and they would know what they felt like doing in that moment. Using improvisation is a great way to let go of your fears and your inhibitions and that need to get things right. So it's a great way to start a workshop on being open and available and engaging. And you will find a lot of really good speakers are in the moment. And they seem very charismatic and the reason for that is is that they're just themselves and they're not judging themselves all the time and it's something that we would do a lot um, as academics because we're so afraid we're going to get pulled up our data isn't right and so we have a defensive kind of body language a lot of the time we're talking so improvisation makes you go get rid of that realize you're in a safe room that most people want you to be good and just be yourself and that's the best presentation that you can give to people in the room uh, about your work and you're going to come across as genuinely passionate and genuinely engaging so that's why improvisation I think really works
0: yeah it was really fun when we did our small skit at the high summit (laughs) when I was playing your students and (laughs) you were my PhD supervisor (laughs) that's
2: really powerful so that's that's um their practice sessions or they're called kind of role play and they're really good to break down you know, I, I've used that method for situations that are quite emotionally charged because it gives um, people in the room an opportunity to see behaviours and behaviors that work mm-hmm. and behaviors that don't work and the use of of being available to somebody and what happens when you're defensive and what happens when you're available to them and moment to moment they can see what's happening. So it is a bit of fun, but it can I've I've used it in so many different ways to show people about like think about open questions, think about being available to that person or just listen, just stop talking and listen. And you get, you know, in, in difficult conversations, so that's what we were working on was yeah. how do you have a difficult conversation mm-hmm. with somebody? And and the model that we went through helps people break down those barriers and it means that you can get to communicate as quickly as possible and realise that there's trust between you. And if there's trust, usually there's loyalty and that means that that's a great team. Indeed, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: And then another one that I really liked was the mirroring one where yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're standing in front of someone and you're mm-hmm. trying to mirror their, their movements. Yeah. And is that part of Alan Alda? That's,
2: you know? that's one from Alan Alda. So, um, What's that? Sorry. So so you didn't see that one So no. because we just did short ones. So mirroring would come from um, acting class right. and it's one of the very first things you do. And it's deeply uncomfortable because you um, what you do is you're, you're partnered with somebody and uh, one person leads and the other person follows so you know um, you stand across from somebody so if if your um, partner raises their left hand then you mirror it so you raise your right hand and you copy it and uh, it's, it's uncomfortable for people so what people do a lot of the time is they try to outsmart and they try to be funny and they jump up and down and they think it's about trying to come up with really cool manoeuvres and the essence of the exercise is actually no if you're trying to cooperate with somebody you work together at a pace that you can both stay at and so we get them to slow down and slow down and then when people slow down their body language changes and their actual innate sense of listening changes like they listen to their to the movement but they're actually completely in tune with each other and that's not something that people from uh, the science and and technical fields would do because we're in our minds all the time and that's a bit mushy. So we we just try to get people to understand that's the degree of comfort that you can get to if you keep practicing um, uh, these kind of skills in effective communication. And again, good managers, good leaders, would do that they would put you in a state of calm because they would mirror what you're doing and it immediately builds trust it's it's primal it's all non-verbal body language that we're doing all the time so mirroring is very effective and it's it's one of the exercises that we wait until we have the room ready for it before we do it mm-hmm.
0: and you're you're in a great position to uh, teach stuff like that because you're an actress you're a performer but You've you've done a PhD. You, yeah. You've been here in, at UCD. Yeah, so right. can you tell us a bit what your research was about when you were? Uh, I, l- I love
2: my PhD. So so I um I have always uh, wanted to be a part of space, but I didn't have the confidence when I was a teenager to apply for it, mm-hmm. nor did I understand how to. I didn't. I couldn't see my own career path. So I grew up in a house of engineers, so it seemed right to do engineering. And then I I studied uh, a, a engineering called biosystems because it was the closest thing to kind of chemistry that I could that I could see, and um, and then when a, a PhD came across it was in food science so it was the science of the of the engineering discipline that I had just done so okay. I moved across into that, and um, my PhD was about finding. Um, it was kind of ahead of its time, really. It was it was an environmental project, effectively. And we were trying to find uses for what, at the time, were byproducts of milk production. So you have two proteins in milk. You know, okay. Little Miss Muffet sat in her tuffet eating her curds and... No idea. Do you not know, <laughs> you know that nurse you're on? So Little Miss Muffet sat in her tuffet eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider that sat down beside her and whatever, blah, 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 whatever happens next, right? So curds is casein, and that okay. is the that is the protein that's used to create cheese. And up until bodybuilding took over whey protein, there was no use for it. So so nobody knew what to do with whey protein. So when I was doing Mm. my PhD, we were trying to come up with new uses for whey protein. And a new area of technology was coming up about um, alternative versions of plastic packaging called biopackaging or biodegradable packaging. So my thesis was about making edible films or biopackaging from whey protein that's oh, amazing that was. it was really good yeah. yeah it was it was really interesting i loved it i loved my phd so you were it's not particularly permeable to water so you have to okay. add different oils and stuff to it so you would do strength tests and different tests and stuff but that was effectively what my phd was in so yeah so i do have a phd and i had a horrific time at my write-up because i had come from engineering and i had to really train myself while writing up in how to write in the passive uh, tense. Mm-hmm. It was really very hard, difficult. Yeah. It was really hard, and I had three supervisors, and they all meant well, but I don't think it's a good idea to have three supervisors, and so. I
0: have five.
2: Yeah, I, I I'm five. not sure if I'm yeah. not sure I'm not sure if I, I I found it very difficult. I think we all found it very difficult, and um, yeah, it was it was very hard. So then I went in and I did a, a postdoc then in that field in UCC, which I enjoyed, but I kind of knew that I had kind of come to the end of that part of my life because I've always been a communicator I always want like I used to win awards for my presentations and you know do my PhD and stuff and I felt really lost after finishing um, my PhD about what what I wanted to do next so Mm -hmm. I was either going to take a job in New Zealand and they were looking for somebody to basically make edible films from fish fish protein, fish skins and I got the job and I went over and I was there for two weeks and I got my visa and everything and I was about to start the job in January, early January um, 2002 and I had started acting in earnest in Cork. And the great thing about the acting scene in Cork is that there's no distinction. Well, there wasn't at the time between an amateur actor and a professional actor because you all kind of got work. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like a very severe decision to make to head off to a continent so far away where Skype was really not even available then. And my parents were very worried about me. And I just sort of went, well, maybe it isn't about the country maybe it's about trying something new and I've always been somebody that's been very instinctive in knowing what's right and I sort of went yeah I'm gonna give this a go and, and that's kind of what happened so I had been always acting and um, always writing plays and all that kind of stuff but I went to become a professional actor then in at uh, the end of uh, 2000 and the end of 2001 2002 and my supervisor was great and um, my boss my direct report I could conti- I continued monitoring my master students that year while I be- while I made steps into acting, and then and then I just took off.
0: Right, mm. and another career then.
2: A whole other career, and it was really interesting. So then I moved up to Dublin, and um, I went with this great show uh, called Soap, which was a huge hit in Cork, and it was like a mock. It was a ten-episode, half-hour a piece of drama that would happen every day. And it was a huge hit of the of the Fringe, and I used it then to come up to Dublin and start my career. And they loved the fact that I had this science brain. And where I thought it was a hindrance, they were going, tell us more about that. Yep. And I go and research and I go, here's what I think when you talk about love. And I start reading stuff off. <laughs> and they really liked it. And they said, you should start making theatre. And I was like, I haven't a clue. And thankfully, I was very lucky that, that uh, people showed me really stuff that was interesting. So I got an opportunity to make my first show about science and I was really interested in trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and I was looking at these beautiful philosophies about around particle physics and it was around the time that they were really close to discovering the Higgs boson in in CERN in Switzerland. Yes, yes, yes. And the physics and philosophy around that is beautiful. You know, it's about trying to find the source of where it all began and I think that's what I was trying to find in me as well and mm-hmm. I found all these lovely parallels and um, I got to, you know, I, I wrote the show and the show was like, CERN says blah, 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 blah. And my friends were like, that's not interesting. and But it's great science, if you yeah. but nobody will find that interesting. Why do you like it? And I go, but nobody cares why I like it. Yes, they do. And what I found was that when I would just, I had this, I would just write reams and reams and reams of why it was important to me. And they go, that's the show. Hmm. And nobody will find that interesting. Yes, they will. <laughs> and I trusted them and they were right. And the interesting thing about making that show, I looked at moments in my life when I, I make really strong decisions mm. all the time. Uh, I feel I'm alive once and I want to have no regrets in life, so I've, I've never had any fear to make strong decisions, but sometimes I've wondered, have I lost a lot that other people have gained by making such fast decisions? So I looked at those moments where I made strong decisions when I stepped away from research, when I ended my marriage, when I didn't go to New Zealand. Um, If I had stayed on in my first job as an engineer with the London Underground because I loved that job Uh, and I thought back to the girl that wanted to be an astronaut and a ballerina and loved being a Muppet and we made videos of these people as if they were still existing. So I would refer to them and then, ba-ba, it was like they were still existing. Because that's kind of one of the theories. Like parallel universes. Yeah, kind of like parallel, exactly like parallel universes, which kind of tied in with the whole particle physics thing. And that's when I discovered that my need to be a part of space was still there. And for all the big decisions that I'd made, for this person that was so proud about making strong decisions, the one thing I really wanted to do I didn't do and I found that really interesting and it never left me and it was lucky that the day that it happened we were videoing it and it was like well I can't deny it now so if I didn't do something about it I, I would know that every time I would be miserable about my life and what I'm doing with it I would go back to that day that I had a chance to change it and I didn't change it so that was 2011 and it took me another two years then to do something about it and the
0: things you want to do with your life is because we haven't mentioned it yet
2: yeah well I want to fulfill that (laughs) prophecy basically I I want to it started out as like oh I want to be a part of space and I was like well it's not that I actually wanted to go to space and so that's so it's an art project it's not just Mm -hmm. about oh give me money and I want to be an astronaut it's it's that to me doesn't make any sense in my head I feel like that's a very selfish goal and I don't think there's anything in it it's about bringing all the things that matter to me to that quest. So, communicating science, finding a new way to bring people's awareness of our planet. And this is where it's kind of relevant to the geosciences, particularly in today's world where we, it's such an overwhelming issue, climate change, nobody really knows how to get a handle on it. So I, I kind of wonder if you could kind of take one little person who's not supposed to be an astronaut and, and follow them And be afraid for them because they're not supposed to be an astronaut. So to be an astronaut, but Mm. they have the bravery and they have the tenacity to do it. So the things that are incredibly scary and dangerous, astronauts very kindly, you know, they sort of um, prevent us from seeing that. And they won't talk to you about it, you know, but but I will. So as the artist, I will. And so it should make people realize like, oh, my God, space is really terrifying and it's really difficult. And it's like oh my God, people are really, humans are really vulnerable and oh my gosh, you know, and, and, and it should, I'm, I'm hoping that that's what will start. And all along the way, it's about spreading the message and it's about trying to find ways to bring the climate and, and climate topics into it bit by bit. And, and all the theatre shows that I've been making have been about space, but they've also been about big human questions. And so that's ultimately what I want to do. I want to get to space and I want to do it not as an employee of a space agency, I want to do it as a citizen and see, can I get the world behind me uh, to fund it and to make it happen so that we all do it together. I don't know if I'm going to do it or not. It's not about the destination, it's about the journey and it's about the things that I can achieve along the way and the conversations that I can have with people.
0: So you've got closer to uh, achieving your childhood dream. Yeah. You went to uh, Utah.
2: I did, that was amazing. Uh, yeah,
0: for the simulated mission on yeah. Mars, how yeah. was that?
2: That was that was actually something that you geoscientists actually would find really interesting as well because the geology, like I I, st- I one of our crew members was a geologist who specialises in mm. kind of Mars landscapes and things. It was um I was terrified. Like I'm not an out- I love nature, but I'm not an outdoorsy person, you know, like I, I'm I was never a girl guide or a brownie or anything like I camped when I was when I was in Australia for the year. I lived in a tent, but that's different. I mean the climate there is, is amenable, but I'm not somebody that can survive in the wild. So I was very anxious about it. Um to be cut off from the world. And it and it was very dangerous all the time because when, when every time you would go outside to simulate as if you were on Mars, which is what the Mars Desert Research Station allows you to do and conduct scientific experiments of, of merit when you're there. Every time you go outside, you have to suit up. So they have equipment that simulates a spacesuit and it's very heavy and cumbersome and it's uncomfortable to wear, very uncomfortable and you can't Take your hands out of your gloves or take your helmet off or take your boots off so all of your natural senses are gone and even that alone is is a very strange feeling walking around you know for four hours uh, with this thing on your back and i had a load of camera gear uh, with me and you were um, doing the documentary i was documenting the... it I, I put in an application to kind of be the science communicator because a lot of people have gone to the the desert research station but but they've kind of only ever reported on the successes and it has a very scientific taste to it and it's very inaccessible to somebody from you know from uh you know just walking on the street like they don't understand it so i was there purposely to take the day to day stuff and to find ways of telling stories that were very human and i think that's why i still talk about it to this day because people are fascinated with just like the toilet blocked uh, you don't shower when you're there you know you eat freeze dried food simple things you, you don't really sleep when you're there and you know and it was a real um it was a real kind of game changer for me because when I left Ireland nobody really knew what I was doing and then kind of word spread when I was over there and I I got this interview um Graham Lennox from the Sunday Times interviewed me and I and the day I flew home there I was bang on the front cover of the Sunday Times and so
0: did you find uh, interesting geology in uh in utah was there anything that oh, you remember oh yeah was? so
2: there's extremophiles and you know like I, I knew all the words at the time you know and um the triassic period yeah yeah, yeah. so roy is amazing roy Naur from um from israel so he works in the Weisman institute and uh he would be uh, a leading uh, geologist there on on mars um and he just has such a passion for geology. And like that, it just sp- spilled over onto all of us. So I would say, you know, because it, it the, the area of Utah, it looks like a canyon. It looks like the Grand Canyon, like a miniature yep. Grand Canyon. So he was able to explain why the landscape was like that. So he was looking for carbonates. He was specifically looking for, if he were to go to Mars, what he would love to do is look for rock formations that he could find carbonates, because if there's carbonates, then it means there used to be water. Yeah, Yeah, that's right, yeah. So that's what he was specifically looking for. And then the other thing we were doing was we were taking soil samples and sieving them because we were 3D printing a, a kind of a brick that was kind of like a Lego brick with with two sections: one for regolith, which is the yes. basically the the topsoil of of any planet that's not Earth, and and water because water is a better insulation of radiation than than soil. And so we were three D printing these bricks, and so. Roy and uh, Rick who was an astrobiologist there they would collect rock samples and they would sieve them to the right size in order to be able to put them into the bricks and then so for one chamber we'd have the bricks and the other chamber or the soil and the other chamber or the regolith and the other chamber we had the water so that's also what we were trying to do so it was very geology based and then uh, Michaela also an astrobiologist she was very interested in just seeing if there was extremophiles in the in the samples in the rock samples and everything and then we grew plants as well uh, using artificial light d- at different wavelengths to see and compared them then to an actual greenhouse of um, spinach s- uh, spinach and um, to see how quickly they grew in artificial light at a certain wavelength and then seed with a, a solution of nutrients versus soil because that's what you'd have to do if you were in uh, you know if you're in a, an extreme environment wow. yeah. yeah but it was great because I did it and I realised like that none of that stuff gets to me and I had <laughs> no clothes at all I had hardly any clothes at me like I had two pairs of jeans And I really understood the value of water. That was the thing that happened when we left. It's only two weeks. It's amazing in two weeks how your whole perception of life changes. And it's changed for me for life that I came back to Ireland. And when I went into my apartment, I was really embarrassed that it was so big. And I was really embarrassed that I had like five or six duvet sets. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like I'm still giving away my books because I don't need anything. I realized I needed nothing except my computer and my camera equipment. I didn't miss anything.
0: Yeah, yeah, I and and
2: water really mm-hmm. you know when you have limited water you really understand the value of it
0: yeah I feel the same when I'm travelling around I, I like to travel on my own you, you, a don't, lot need and you, you don't, don't need to shower you don't need anything I put my need backpack anything. a few things and that's it
2: yeah and, and when, when water is taken away from you and then I remember we went into a, a, a horrible diner but seemed like a palace and you know I had pancakes and real coffee and everything it was amazing and we went to the loo and we would only flush for number two, not number one, because we were saving water, and that's fine. Like I got, I'm, I'm quite hardy like that. Like i have a quite, you know, I don't mind um, dirt or muck or anything. And um I went to leave the cubicle, and I wasn't going to flush because it was just number one, and it was only like fifty mils of like urine. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh my god, I better flush. And when I flushed, it was ridiculous the amount of water mm-hmm. to flush fifty mils of urine. It's and stupid. It's yeah. actually stupid. Yeah. There has to be another. Toilet flushing system that's more effective, oh, and then the I went system. and put my hands under the tap, and again ridiculous pressure, not necessary for washing your hands. We are wasting water, and when we start to have limited water supplies, we will talk about how much we wasted water. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah,
1: so that kind of perspective, and then imagine then if you went to space and you saw the Earth, what well, that would be even.
2: <sighs> well, that's it. You see everything, everything that's happened to me has been about perspective and this is something that I try to tell people all the time is like your perception of your life can change in an instant if you choose to change it and I think the ultimate perspective is for everyone to start to see the planet as as, as home as opposed to like countries or departments or whatever like the more we insulate ourselves and become like clans the less chance we have of being able to really get our heads around um, our actual genuine relationship with the planet because we're parasites we're actually parasites on this planet and we're very lucky that we live somewhere that gives us every single thing we need and we somehow have stupidly think that we're in charge we're not in charge By the time I go to space, I hope everybody feels they know me so that they're worrying about Mm -hmm. me, you know, and particularly when they'll see me crying and puking and really not coping with floating in space. And that's what I want. I want them to feel that I want them to be worried for me because that should change the relationship that they have with the planet
1: yeah we consider our humanity and how tiny we are and exactly it's significant yeah. yeah
2: but that's yeah. good 91 percent of the world population are breathing polluted air yeah and it's the one thing that we that we have to preserve and it's this very thin layer of air so that's my my next show was about that the previous show was a fictional piece but it was sort of semi-truthful it was based on my mission in in Utah, but this time I was actually on Mars and it was set in the future and I keep bees with Dad and I was trying to um, see if I could get bees to pollinate our plants on Mars. So it was a it was a it was a sort of a, a a love story to my love love letter to my dad who thankfully is still alive but I was kind of dealing with grief before it happens it was like the thing of oh my mm-hmm. God, I don't want to lose my parents so it, was, so it was that. So it was a very human piece as well uh, as about kind of explaining about do we really want people on Mars? Do we really want to colonise the planet and all that? And then the the first show I made with Blackrock Castle was about me kind of sharing to the world that I'm a woman in my 40s and I want to go to space and I have no idea how to do it. Like a one-woman show.
1: And this year for Science Week, yes. you will also be... Yeah,
2: show. I, do, I love it. So uh, baking in space is my absolute favourite thing I think I've ever done. Um, I met Andrew Smith, who's a, who was a finalist on uh, the Great British Bake Off the when it was BBC show, who's also an aerospace engineer and also likes to combine his passion for baking with uh, his passion for science and space. And so uh, we we created a show together called Baking in Space. It's largely based on his one-man show, which is Baconeering, which is all demonstrations. But he takes elements of that show into Baking in Space. And then we have a panel of guests um, from the European Space Agency and, like, from AirSat last year from UCD. And we, we talk about... necessity to eat in space and on all around that and the engineering of space and where it's all going and and Ireland's part in it. So it's coming back for um, Science Week Uh, and this year it's not only on in Smock Alley it'll be also on in Cork and and Galway Uh, and I'm also doing a lecture for The Arc about beekeeping and um, I'm part of the Wexford Science Festival as well and there's other events, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, this is fascinating. Yeah. So many projects. Yeah. It's great. Keeps yeah. you busy. Keeps you busy. Yeah, keeps you busy. Let's say Overworked and overtired.
0: I think we have a question from uh, Twitter.
2: We have a question from Mark
1: from Twitter. He asks, Dear Neve, you say you want to go to space. Are we talking near orbit or full Kuiper? Kuiper. Kuiper Belt <laughs> territory. Kuiper belt.
2: <laughs> so that's great. Thank you very much for that question. I was really excited when I saw it. Um, I would say everywhere, Um, but initially, um, so the plan would be that um, the first phase would be um, International Space Station. I'm trying to get the five partners uh, involved. So that's the European Space Agency, NASA, Russia, Canada and JAXA to really think about an artist in space. And I hope that my work everything I do is about like it should be me it should be me it should be me Mm -hmm. so that's one and then the moon I really want to go to the moon because when I when I was 8 years old it was the Earthrise picture that kind of kickstarted all of this so I really want to stand on the moon and see the earth from a distance and then do that but yes I do I want to and then I would love to go to Mars if we ever have if we get there I mean I'll be probably in my 60s then but I'd love to go and spend two years there because it's probably gonna. that's how long you have to stay in order to get your return trip back to come back and explain about it. And Kuiper Belt would be amazing, oh my God, but I don't know if, um, if we have the technology yet to get that far. But if there was spacecraft that could take me to the edge of the Kuiper Belt, I would so go. We
1: have another question.
2: Yeah, yeah I
0: think it's a question from uh, Laura who asks... What is the story behind your profile photo and where does your passion for space come from?
2: Um, I don't know what profile photo she's talking about. I think it could be the one of it's me the one floating. Where you're yeah, floating, floating in anti-gravity. So, yeah. so uh, the story behind that is that um, I was very lucky in 2017 that there was uh, a team of people from Germany who had hired the Aleutian um, uh plane, which is used for zero gravity training of cosmonauts and any astronauts that are in training at Star City in Moscow. They hired it to uh, film two girls that they want to put on the International Space Station, because there there's one woman who really is passionate about having the first female German astronaut. And uh, there were slots available for people to join them on that um, charter. And because I was an artist um a a fellow artist in whom told me about this and put me in touch with the guy that was organizing it and i got a a very reduced deal to be able to go on it so i managed to take a zero gravity flight in the illusion which is the most um powerful form of that you can have of of zero gravity as the plane because it's it's such a big plane and so yeah so i experienced uh, pockets of uh, zero gravity uh, over a two-hour period, which was hardcore, I'll tell you, and um, <laughs> you really are out of your comfort zone. It's the most bizarre feeling. Uh, it can make you very ill. Thankfully, I didn't get sick, but lots of people did. But it, but it was, it was amazing. And where does my passion for space come from? It the house, you know, you grew up in a house where, you know, um, we weren't kind of a lovey-dovey family that told each other that we loved each other. But the thing we always had together was science fiction. Yeah. And so, and and programs like Cosmos with Carl Sagan and Life on Earth with David Attenborough. So they would be our bonding moments. So family time for us was watching science fiction movies, uh, Star Trek, going to Star Wars in the cinema together, and <laughs> um, all the. So that was the thing. So my passion from space came from that. And then Dad would. It was before the internet. You would buy um a volume of books called the Encyclopedia, and. He, would, he, would, he was in a book club and a new, a new volume would come every month, you know, off the alphabet. And he would we would refer to these all the time. And uh, he gave me a, a summer project once um, to uh, tell him, it was just to keep me busy. He'd go, I want you to, to go and research Saturn. And I made this whole <laughs> thing about Saturn. And when I researched it, I found this Earthrise picture. And wow. I thought, God, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I really, before I die, I want to actually stand on the moon and see the Earth like that. And that was kind of it that's where it started when I was eight and never went away and I know it never went away because I always kept diaries and whenever I would have these crises of identity you know like what am I supposed to do with my life and stuff and I'd make a list of things I want to be they would always be like you know volunteering work in Africa and then astronaut would be there as well so I, I always felt that it was a it was a profession that was that was very selfless so that's where it came from. So, yeah. Wow. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you. I really hope you achieve your goal or at least that you well, go, I need your come help. closer to I to need you. your help.
2: You, every time I do a podcast, every time I talk to somebody, you're helping me because we're spreading the word. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: so, uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, I think that's all the time we have. So Yeah, uh, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where, where can people will? Uh, will...
2: Yeah, so um, my website is neveshaw.ie. I just updated with loads of content. There's loads of videos. It really gives you an appreciation of what I'm doing. And um, you can follow me on Instagram, at Twitter. The handle is the same, so it's at uh, Doctor Neve Shaw. So or mm. underscore Neve underscore Shaw. And I would really appreciate your following because nowadays Instagram followers has a currency. So please follow me. I Appreciate it. So, yeah, thank yeah. you. All right.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.